Hello and welcome to the Low Tox Life Podcast. I'm Alex, your host, and today's show 46. Now, before I go into today's show, I have to tell you about our show sponsor for the next two weeks. It is the beautiful Black Chicken Remedies range, 15% off for listeners for the next two weeks. I adore Shea Birch, the founder. She's become a good friend. We actually live in the same area and because we both work for ourselves, it's always lovely to catch up and check in and and have a bit of a powwow. And the products she creates are just exquisite. I actually came across them years and years ago when she first launched because my sister-in-law was actually doing the PR for the launch and she said, oh, there's this new product and you know, they've given us a bunch of samples. Why don't you try some? And it was the Love My Body Oil. And my goodness, that stuff is fantastic. And it really made me pay attention, jumped on the website, saw what else they had, saw that Shay was a Sydney lady. And so we actually ended up catching up and having a coffee and the rest is history. I absolutely adore supporting her and her work. And isn't it lovely that she adores supporting mine too by sponsoring the show for the next two weeks. You have to try, okay, my two favourite products in the range are the face polish and that tiny little bottle, you might think, you know, $40 or whatever it is, I actually can't quite remember the price, but whatever, if that thing was $100, I would be buying it because it lasts a whole year to me. I just use it once a fortnight, sometimes in winter once a week if I feel like my skin's getting a little bit dry and dull. But it is so good and it's an absolute must-have for me. And I adore the face cleanser. That's my other favourite, 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 can't be without that when it runs out type of product from the range. Everything's good. Oh, gosh, the body oil, the body scrub is beautiful. That's a great gift for people. Uh, So luxurious. And when you use that, you don't even need to use a moisturiser because of the beautiful oils in the mix there. You have to try it. 15% off. Everything's in the show notes in terms of what you have to do, where the website is, but please make the most of it. And she's actually throwing in a little sample pack of the whole range as well. So if you get two or three things and and you want to try a few other things, your man's got a beard maybe, there's the beard oil, there's the incredible axilla deodorant paste, which is like a cult product that sells by the bucket loads because it's just so effective and so non-toxic, no aluminium, none of that horrible stuff that people felt they used to have to use to stay stinky free. So yes, please head to Black Chicken Remedies and um, make the most of this fortnight's uh, partner offer. Now, today's show with Professor Michael Antonio, he is someone that I sought out because I'd heard of his incredible work a few years ago because I had just missed a talk he had done in Sydney and a friend had been and she said, oh my gosh, you would have loved listening to Michael speak. He's based at King's College London at Guy's Hospital and he's doing this incredible study. And the study was and to assess in his lab with a team of researchers over a period of a long period of time what it would look like in terms of health implications to actually test very very low level pesticide exposure. So this is the kind of exposure that we're talking about with residue from uh, conventionally grown or genetically modified grown crops. And the study is fascinating. I've put it in the show notes as well as a couple of other studies he's done since. 
And uh, we talk about that today. We also talk about the work that he's come from as a genetic scientist and researcher for a few decades now and and his passion for genetically modified foods awareness. So I should put the word awareness there, otherwise you'd think that he loves genetically modified foods. He's actually terrified by them. And as a scientist who is forced to abide by the most stringent safety requirements if any of the human biology testing that he does would were to go to trial or to be used in clinic. He's absolutely astonished by the fact that the same stringent safety, uh, long-term, tested every which way kind of uh, standards aren't upheld when it comes to genetically modifying food. So he's going to explain it all far better than I can. It's a long chat. It's one of those two cup of tea or big, big walk chats. We go for an hour and 20 minutes. So if you don't have a huge amount of time today, split it up in two. But uh, I will say as the chat goes on, for me, it got more and more clear, more and more inspiring and uh, more and more terrifying as well. I mean, let's be honest. So to that end, I'm actually going to record just in case you're feeling a bit freaked during this show. I'm going to record a solo show next week where I'm going to take you through the absolute top things that you could switch to organic to make the biggest impact in your pantry and produce as well as some really inexpensive ways to get access to spray-free foods because that's a fantastic opportunity there where there are a lot of people, if you get to know your farmer, who are too small to afford thousands and thousands, you know, it's tens of thousands of dollars a year to get organic accreditation. But if you can find local farmers to you that might not be certified but are farming in a beautiful way and they open their farms up to you and you have that transparency of how they do things, then that can be a great way to afford non-pesticide sprayed produce. And I'm going to go through a whole bunch of other tips, tricks, inspirations, must-dos, don't worry about all of that kind of stuff with a solo show next week to follow up from this show. Just so that we, I'm I'm very big on, if you've only just tuned into the show or the blog, very big on when, when we take on new knowledge and when that's big and it's heavy and it's sometimes a bit scary, is that we are always working towards solutions. How can we empower ourselves? What are the steps we can take today? How can I feel positive about my place in the world, my power to change things so that it's not all doom and gloom. Now, today's show is by no means all doom and gloom either. I just find it dead set fascinating and I hope you do too. Take it for a walk, have a cup of tea, pop the kettle on and enjoy. Hello, Michael. Hello, Alex. How are you? I'm very well, actually. I've got some very exciting things going on in life at the moment. Oh, how wonderful. (laughs) I'm here with my little gin and soda water on my Friday night in Sydney in a very cold night. And uh, for you, it's the middle of the day. And I often tell the story because it kind of highlights the kind of person that I am when I go on holidays or travel, that I'm the kind of girl who looks up professors doing studies on genetically modified foods and, and glyphosate when I go on holidays. And that's how I came to come and see your incredible research that you were doing and meet you. And I've thought long since that I wanted to to bring you in to educate others and people in my audience and share with my community 
So having a podcast now is just the perfect way to be able to do that. And I would love to start by having you just share a little bit of your journey into medicine, uh, how you came to to study medicine, and then what sparked an interest specifically in genes for you, which is obviously your specialisation. Thank you, Alex. I want to say straight away what a pleasure it is and an honour actually to be um, to have this chat with you and, and to record this podcast. And I do hope that people will gain uh, information and insight into the subjects that we'll be covering today. I should begin, however, by saying that I'm not, I'm not medically qualified. So although I'm a medical research scientist, ah, okay. yep. I'm not a qualified doctor. Mm-hmm. And I got interested in genetics actually as an undergraduate at the University of Oxford. During my final year, I did a project in the genetics department, and that really just found the whole subject of genetics rudimentary as it was in those days, in terms of what we didn't even really have a clear idea of, uh, what the structure of genes and and what form their regulation took in those days. But nevertheless, it was fascinating to me. And when I graduated from the University of Oxford, I I was fortunate to get a PhD studentship position at the University of Reading, which involved the use of uh, molecular biology, looking at the regulation of of gene function. And and that's really how I then progressed after I got my PhD, I did the usual thing, which is to obtain a postdoctoral research couple of postdoctoral research fellowships, firstly in the United States at the University of Nebraska. I know uh, not many people <laughs> will know where that is, but it's in the American West. Well, it's a stop on uh, everybody's trip to the U.S. Uh, these days. It is, it is <laughs> as, you, as you say. I feel uh, terrible. There's probably someone from Nebraska listening right now. We love you. Uh, it's okay. Oh, yeah, yeah. sure. <laughs> um, I had a very interesting time in Lincoln, Nebraska for three years. And then returned to London, where for 10 years I was at the National Institute for Medical Research. This is a large medical research council, government research council institute. And there, that's where I felt I I really got the mentoring that I was seeking to move myself forward in the area of molecular biology and the study of gene structure, gene organization and regulation. And then in uh, 1994, having spent more than 10 years at the National Institute for Medical Research, I obtained a faculty position of then the medical school here at Guy's Hospital in central London, which uh, was then assimilated into King's College London in 1998. So, and I've been here ever since. So I've been here for more than 20 years now here on the on what is known as the Guy's Campus of King's College London and in the Department of Medical and Molecular Genetics. Amazing. And you obviously at some point developed an interest for the genes in plants and how they were being doctored and what was starting to look like um, some perhaps negative advancements in genetic modification of uh, crops. How did you sort of become interested in that specifically? 
Yes, this is a very good question because um, my background is in uh, human genetic mm. gene systems and developing human gene therapy, you know, gene gene medicines. Yes, uh, as and you do it amazingly. We, your work is incredible. Can you just actually, let's just spend a little bit more time there. I remember reading about something you had done to help people who had who were normally thought beyond hope with limb function. Am I right there? Is my memory serving me okay? Am I just about to be embarrassed on my own show? <laughs> you may be referring to muscular dystrophy. Yes, thank you. Mm. Yes, for a while, I, one of the objectives of my group was to study the regulation of muscle gene expression and use those discoveries to try to develop gene-based medicines for conditions such as muscular dystrophy. That was several years ago now, and, and we, we've moved on from there. And really where my work has made its most significant contribution is developing a gene, gene medicine to target a, a, a group of blood diseases known as thalassemias, especially beta thalassemia. This is a condition that affects the red, our red blood cells. Mm -hmm. Our blood is red, and the reason why our blood is red is because most of the cells that are circulating our blood are red, our red blood cells. And these are the cells that carry the oxygen around our body from our lungs that keeps us alive and expels the waste carbon dioxide from our, from our lungs too. The, uh, the crucial protein inside red blood cells is called hemoglobin. These are probably things that many people have heard of. Yeah. So the hemoglobin in people with beta thalassemia is defective. There's basically, at the end of the day, not enough of it. And, the, um, and that's because these individuals have inherited mutations mm. in the genes that carry the information for the hemoglobin components. And uh, as a result, their red blood cells are poorly functioning and they normally, without treatment, such individuals will have a very short and miserable life. At the moment, the kinds of therapies that these individuals have available to them are blood transfusions, uh, which keeps them going and they can have a, a, a long life. But it's a very uh, arduous and can be quite painful and life-restricting um, procedure. And bone marrow transplants from donors are only available to a few of such individuals because you have to find a match, a matched donor. Mm. And about 30% of people have such an eligible donor. So there's clearly room for improvement there. And one of the things that many groups actually around the world have been trying to develop is gene therapy, where we actually introduce a normal functioning copy of the defective gene, it's called beta globin, into the bone marrow parent cells uh, of the patient. The bone marrow has parent cells, what are known as stem cells, that give rise to all of the different types of blood cells in our circulation, in our blood, including the red blood cells. So we genetically correct the bone marrow parent stem cells of people with beta thalassemia, and now they will produce well-functioning, if not perfect, but well-functioning red blood cells, and they would be cured of their condition lifelong. And one of the gene medicines that's been developed in my lab is actually being used in clinical trials with people with beta thalassemia, with, for, with colleagues 
in Milan at the Gene Therapy Center in Milan, and the results are looking very encouraging, I'm glad to say. Oh, that's incredible, Michael. I mean, it's just amazing that you can have such an impact with the work that you do uh, for people who who were really, you know, who are facing a life of transfusion therapy, for that to possibly not be the case moving forward would be an incredible relief to many people out there. How many people are affected with that condition? Oh, it's many. Uh, these blood red blood cell disorders, thalassemia and a related disease called sickle cell disease, sickle cell anemia, they are the world's most prevalent genetically inherited diseases. So we're talking of hundreds of thousands wow. that are being born with these conditions all the, you know, annually. Any, there are millions that are affected at any given time that could potentially benefit from these types of treatments. Incredible. And so does that mean because it's quite a large population of people suffering the disease that it's easier to pull together research teams, funding, etc.? Um, or is that always still a challenge? That could still be a challenge. It's a, In Europe, at least in Southern Europe, it's been easier because the disease is prevalent around the Mediterranean Sea. So it is seen as a, it is a major health problem mm. in Europe. And so it has been a focus of research for, for many years here and in North America as well. Overall, it's nevertheless a, a disease of the developing world. Mm. And with many people failing, in fact, most people probably failing to be to be even diagnosed of their condition, let alone be treated. It's a sort of a very sad thing to to say, but that is the reality that we're faced with. So it's uh, because it's it certainly doesn't attract much attention from big pharmaceutical companies because it is a developing world problem. Mm. There aren't fast profits to be made. Let's put it this way. Isn't it dev- does that not devastate you as a researcher that that is the way of research and and medicine you know if if a quick buck can be made then it'll get pushed through faster and if it can't then good luck to you finding your funding I it is very frustrating that things can be prioritized on the basis of their financial uh, potential yeah and on their mass rather on the clinical impact the global clinical impact that the work can have. Mm. So yes, it is. It's it's frustrating, but and also very. I find it very, very sad. You know, because there's, it means that um, people will continue to suffer when there could be solutions. Absolutely. And so you're doing this work, and you'd done the work on muscular dystrophy in the past, and to come back to that question where I just indulgently. Trans <laughs> tangented for a little while there because I think your work is amazing and it, to hear from a researcher at your level and the teams that you work with on some of the challenges I think really just reminds us how important it is at the grassroots to keep awareness at the focus of everything we do in our communities and uh, and make you know things more widely known it's it's just so important and what could what could be more important than knowing more about exactly what's going on with our food and with this proliferation of genetically modified crops that we see today? How did you come into being interested in doing work around that? Yes, this is um, a good question, giving, as I say, the sort of divergent from my, my historical mm. research. From humans to corn. 
How did we get humans, there? How did we get there? <laughs> well, back in the mid-90s, before the first commodity GM crops, genetically modified GM crops were commercialized, I had friends, uh, one particular friend, made me aware. I mean, I knew, I knew GM crops, foods were being developed. I was aware of that. But it was distant. It, it wasn't something that I was very familiar with and what its consequences could be if it became uh, released en masse into the food supply. A friend basically um, woke me up to this. He, he, uh, we discussed this and I realized there was a problem here because of the way that the technology, the way genetic engineering or genetic modification technology, the way its use was being portrayed in an agricultural crop development context. It was being claimed as something very precise and predictable with totally predictable outcomes. And that in fact, GM foods could be even safer therefore than those that could be produced through conventional breeding practices. But this, of course, anybody who knows about GM technology, and that's all I've done all my life, by the way, all my research has all, always involved the use of genetic engineering technologies and, and its application using all kinds of organisms from viruses to including some work we did in, in mice, in ant laboratory mice. So I knew very well the strengths and weaknesses of the transgenic GM technologies. Mm. And I knew what you couldn't couldn't expect from them. And I knew that the way that this technology was being portrayed in an agricultural context was simply, to put it mildly, somewhat it was it was misrepresenting the truth. And it was as a result also ignoring its potential downsides, its potential dangers. And so I thought that this was and because you know we're we're talking here about the, the food foodstuffs which is something that, you know, we all have to eat to live. And therefore, a radical transformation of the food supply through genetic modification, if it was to go wrong, would have radical effects on vast swaths of the human population around the world. So it's very, very important that, you know, we, we get this right. Yeah. And so this was in the mid-90s, you were having That's these right. thoughts. You were That's very, right. very sceptical and wanted to... Was it that you wanted to bring to light what the potential downsides might be because you saw that they weren't being discussed in any way? Yes, I, I realised that um, I felt there was something wrong there and my conscience didn't allow me to sort of just sit back and let it go and let other people perhaps challenge what was being said and what was being developed. So I decided I, uh, I wanted to speak out. I realised that I was entering into an area that very controversial, and that I was potentially going to be uh, compromising my own position, my own academic position. I was going to say, it could be a very, uh, very dodgy career move to, Indeed, to contest the giants. Very much so. But, you know, made the decision. And I should say my institution, my employers have been very, very good. I have not had any severe reprimands <laughs> for engaging, uh, expressing my concerns in the media, in public. So I'm, I'm grateful because I know that others like other people in academia that have expressed concerns have actually, um, rep they have been reprimanded by their institutions because they fear that it may 
put their institution in a bad light and they may compromise certain funding streams or whatever, you know, something along these lines. So nevertheless, you know, I, I took that step and I have to say I've had little or no problem from my host institution. And so I started to basically write articles. And what I found actually was how little people knew. Mm. And so I suddenly found myself being very much in a kind of educator role, where having to explain the fundamentals of genetic engineering technologies and how we use them in medicine and how tightly regulated things are in their medical application and how that contrasts with the way the similar or the same technologies are being used in an agricultural context and where how there the regulation seems to be in, by contrast, very superficial, very weak and inadequate. Mm. So, yeah, that all started. So I was writing many articles, giving many interviews and attending many public meetings and so on and so forth. Yeah. Given you just mentioned uh, how you were shocked at how little people knew of the fundamentals, mm-hmm. could you just share, um, because, you know, there may well be a, a huge amount of people who saw that this week's podcast was about me chatting to a scientist about genetically modified foods and thinking, finally, I'm actually going to look at this topic and learn something because I've never understood these terms and I don't really know what it all means. Could you share with us, in your words, what you believe to be the fundamental definition of genetically modified foods as we see them being used in agriculture today? Certainly. So the genetic modification, as it's used in agriculture today, I, I call it a no-holds-barred technology. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> the reason I, I, I call it that is because the procedures of genetic modification allow you to basically transfer a gene or genes from any organism into a crop. Mm-hmm. So you can see genes from viruses, from bacteria, from unrelated plants, from animals, even humans, for example. It doesn't matter. You can take genes from any species any or any type of organism and move them into a crop. Under normal circumstances, as we know, normal sexual reproduction could only take place through closely related species, closely related life forms. So you can you can cross a dog with a dog, but you can't cross dogs and cats. Mm. And it's the same in the plant world, of course. You can cross strawberries with strawberries, but you can't cross strawberries with wheat. Mm. But with genetic engineering, I can transfer a, a potato gene into a strawberry or vice versa. I can transfer an animal gene into a crop if I wanted to, as was done back in the 90s, where a, a gene, a variant of a gene that exists in an Arctic fish, which confers antifreeze properties on the on this fish, was moved into strawberries to try to make them frost resistant. So this is what genetic engineering allows you to do. It allows you to take one or a few genes and move them into your from completely unrelated organisms into the into the food crop to try and somehow change alter I won't say enhance but just to change its characteristics to suit a given purpose and we can describe what those purposes are in just just a minute and but just to give an example we we know the very first GM commodity crops that was launched was soybeans. Soybeans were engineered to withstand it being sprayed with a herbicide, a weed killer called Roundup, Mm -hmm. which is a glyphosate-based herbicide. 
Normally when you spray the soybeans with glyphosate-based herbicide like Roundup, they will just die. So, uh, But the soybeans were engineered with a gene from bacteria. So again, normally the, the bacterial gene would never end up in the soybeans under normal circumstances, but using the genetic modification technologies, you can move this gene, these gene transfer methods, you can move this bacterial gene with appropriate gene control elements into the soybean. Now that bacterial gene will switch on. And now when you spray the soybeans with the Roundup, the soybeans will stay alive, but the Roundup will kill off all the weeds that are growing around the plants in the field. So these are the, kind, so these are the kinds of extreme gene transfers that genetic modification allows you to do. Now, at face value, that may sound amazing. Mm. <laughs> amazing. I can move a gene from here to there and give all these uh, these wonderful new characteristics, properties to the food crop. Okay, it may not benefit the consumer that the Roundup is, uh, that the soybeans are uh, resistant to the Roundup, but it certainly can help the farmer, you could say. Yeah. At face value, this may sound amazing. And so what, what is the problem? And the problem is, is the technology is not precise and ignores fundamental concepts of how genes work. First of all, we now know that no gene works in isolation. Genes work as integrated networks, highly complex, highly finely tuned, highly regulated networks of functions. And I'd imagine and this is why you have to do so much research if you're considering, uh, you know, impregnating a correct, uh, a working gene uh, into bone marrow for a human before actually going to trials. And that's why you have to do so much work because it's so volatile. It is. It's absolutely right. We have to, we accept the limitations, yeah, potential downsides of the technology in medicine, which is why there is an obsession with safety and the mm. levels of safety valuation that a given gene medicine has to go through before even a clinical trial, let alone being prescribable in, in the clinic, is enormous. And yet how crazy that the, the food that keeps us alive is not put under the same stringent safety obsession. Not at all. In fact, yeah, it, it's, it's so inadequate, it's hardly worth doing what they do, actually. <laughs> But to come back to the to the to the to the conceptual flaw of mm. the whole technology, it treats genes that the way genes are being used in an agricultural context and, and inadequately evaluated is that they treat genes as isolated units of information that can be moved between organisms with total predictability. When the truth of the matter is that every gene is working within a given context, within a given organism. And that when you take it out of context and move it into a completely new one, there will be consequences. Not a question of if, it's, there, it's a matter of degree. This gene will, will be part of a different network and there will be a disruptive effect. And in addition, the way that the foreign gene is spliced into the DNA of the, of the plant is also a random process and runs a, a high risk of disrupting one or many gene functions uh, as a result. If you disrupt gene functions, 
you alter the biochemistry of the crop. And if you alter the biochemistry, you run the risk of producing, not only bringing about the outcome you're interested in, but inadvertently producing novel toxins and novel allergies. Plants are very good at producing toxins. They do that as part of their natural defense mechanisms against predators because plant biochemistry is incredibly sophisticated and complex, has evolved to be that way. So what we're finding is, is that with this novel combination of genes that you end up with in the GM plant, plus the fact that the GM transformation process is mutagenic, that is, it causes damage. The process of inserting the gene and the growing of the plant material in the laboratory introduces large numbers of mutations, large numbers of changes in the DNA of the plant. The combination of the mutagenic effect and the novel combination of genes that the procedure brings about runs a very high risk of radically altering the biochemistry of the plant with possibly negative health outcomes in terms of novel toxin production, novel allergy production, disturbed nutritional value, and so on. And indeed, research from my own group that we published late last year has contributed to demonstrating how destructive the GM transformation process can be on a crop. Now, is that different to the research paper that you brought out on the effects of glyphosate-based herbicides, or is that, was that within the same body of research? It was part of the overall program, but, but it was a very distinct study where we looked at the composition of a variety of GM corn, maize, that had been engineered to withstand being sprayed with Roundup herbicide. So it was a Roundup-tolerant GM corn. And we compared the composition of this GM corn with a neogenetically equivalent variety, both of them having been grown at the same time in, in, in adjacent fields. And what we found actually that there were marked differences, the spectrum of proteins and the spectrum uh, of biochemical uh, small molecules or called metabolites. There were major differences in the metabolite profile and the protein spectrum of proteins, the protein profile in the GM corn compared to, the, compared to a near genetically equivalent non-GM variety. And our results clearly pointed the finger at the GM transformation process as a whole, as a package, being at the basis of these major changes in the composition of the GM corn compared to uh, the non-GM variety. We've seen it firsthand in my lab, just how disruptive it can be. And when you talk about changing metabolites and proteins in grains, and then you look at people by the, oh God, by the millions around mm. the world starting to now have more and more issues with grains and the way grains seem to affect brain function and digestive systems, then you don't have to be a rocket scientist or even a genetic scientist like yourself to think, well, hold on, if that's what's happening in agriculture and this is what's happening in health, then are those two things not possibly linked? This is an extremely good question. There is absolutely no doubt that diseases that were once very rare are now 
at epidemic proportions around the world. And that includes, of course, the whole spectrum of cancers, liver function problems, say fatty liver disease, of kidney dysfunction, neurological problems, behavioral problems such as autism, spectrum diseases in children. These conditions used to be very rare, but are now incredibly frequent, found at incredible high frequency in uh, at least in industrially developed nations, whether it be Europe, North America or Australasia. And this has happened in the last 60 years or so. So you have to ask yourself the question, what has happened in the last 60 years that could have resulted in these massive escalations of these once rare diseases, especially in the last 30, 20, 30 years? And the answer to that question is, well, of course, a great deal has changed in the last mm. 50, 60 years. But the one thing that has changed dramatically and which affects every single person is the way we grow and consume our food. We went from we, our agricultural-based system right now, uh, since the Second World War, agricultural-based system has become chemical-based, mm. increasingly chemical-based. Uh, and where we now, from even from treating the seeds before you sow them, right through cultivation until after harvest, there is one chemical treatment after another, whether it be fungicides, weed killer herbicides, insect killing insecticides, nematicides. It's just endless. The list just goes on and on. There are hundreds of different pesticides of this type that are being applied in agriculture around the world. And these are in our food supply. Mm. The levels are low, but that doesn't mean that they're safe. No. And the study that you did on glyphosate-based herbicides, such as Roundup, the thing I loved about it was that you were trying to emulate that kind of low level that we would be exposed to on a daily basis residue, if you like, from agricultural practices to see if at that low level there were any issues. Talk to me about that and what you found. Yes, indeed. I'll be delighted to. (laughs) (laughs) Seeing as you spent so many years on the darn thing, you might as well share the the news. Yes, yes, indeed. Just to illustrate the point uh, I've just been making with an example from my own laboratory is that what we did was um, basically... Uh, there were groups of rats that were treated or, or which ingested Roundup weed killer, Roundup glyphosate-based herbicide in their drinking water for two years. So we had one group of rats that was ingesting the Roundup in their drinking water and one group that was not. Very simple experimental design. All other things were equal. They were on the same diet. They were all the same age, same sex, etc. And And these... Analysis, early analysis from an an earlier study published using these uh, material from these animals, published by Professor Gilleric Seralini, he, he, the the blood and urine analysis, as well as the actual microscopic and anatomical analysis of the livers and the kidneys of these animals, implied that these two organs in particular were were unhealthy. They were, they were, they were, they showed areas of damage scarring, necrosis, uh, incidence in the Roundup treated group was much higher than in the control group after two years of continual ingestion. Now, this was already very worrying, especially since the dose, there were actually three doses. 
of Roundup that the rats received. There were three groups of rats with three different doses. But the one that we were particularly interested in and which is particularly worrying was the group of, of rats that received the lowest dose. The lowest dose group received an amount of glyphosate in their drinking water that is what we call 50 parts per trillion. To oh, give it wow. 50 parts per trillion. So that, as I can tell from your reaction, is, is, <laughs> it is a very small amount. Yeah, it's so tiny. It is tiny. It's actually half of what would be permitted in European Union drinking water. Okay. So it's half. It's an amount that you could find in contaminated drinking water, say in the European Union and elsewhere. It's much, much lower in the United States, where they obviously feel that people are much more hardy. <laughs> <laughs> that is such a nice way to put lax well, legislation. <laughs> sorry, that's, that's just the way it is. Um, we tell it like it is in this show, don't worry. You don't yeah, have to beat around no, the bush. But actually, I mean, the, the, the level of glyphosate that's permitted in drinking water, tap water in the United States is actually 7,000 times higher than what is permitted in the European Union. Okay, so hold on. Do you think that has something to do with not really knowing what to do with these escalating levels in drinking water and so they sort of almost up what the new normal is? Oh, now, yeah, I should I should qualify what I just said mm. because it's important. Yes, please. Although there is this incredibly high, what for me is an incredibly high level of glyphosate permitted in drinking water, tap water in the United States, that's not necessarily what you find in it. Uh, analyses of tap water in the United States have actually found very low or undetectable levels of glyphosate. So although you do find, we can come uh, elaborate on this later, so although you find glyphosate just in the urine of just about everybody in the United States and roughly half the people in, the Europe, in Europe, the, uh, so the, but it's clear that where that glyphosate is coming from is not from the water, but from the food that they eat. So we can, we can, yeah. we, I'd like to return to this later because it has, you know, the implications out there, our study results has implications here. So nevertheless, coming back to these, these rats that were ingesting Roundup, they're remembering also that Roundup is not just glyphosate, but a mixture of glyphosate and a number of other substances called adjuvants that help the glyphosate uh, or are essential for glyphosate to exert its weed killing capability. So, and the, just the initial biochemistry and anatomical analysis of the organs of these rats already showed worrying signs that even the lowest, this lowest level, this tiny quantity of Roundup and glyphosate that these rats were ingesting over two years was doing them serious harm. So what we decided to do as a follow-up to this first study by Professor Cirillini was to take the livers and the kidneys from these very same animals and do conduct what's known as a molecular profiling omics analysis. Now, what do I mean by this? There is a spectrum of analytical methods now, cut, what we call cutting edge analytical methods now that come under this umbrella known as, uh, that has been coined as omics analyses. And they're called omics because each one of the analytical methods ends in the term omics. 
So we have transcriptomics. Transcriptomics is the gene profile and a gene expression profile. In other words, what genes are switched on and those that are switched on, what level they're on at, how, okay. how much of the protein that they code for is being produced. So that's the transcriptomics, the gene expression profile. Then you have proteomics. So this is the protein profile, all the many different types of proteins that make up the structure of an organism. An analysis of this spectrum of different proteins is known as proteomics. Okay. And then the, the small biochemical molecules, the metabolites, an analysis of the metabolites, the biochemical, the things that the biochemistry really re revolves around is called metabolomics. And the power of these methods is that they give you a very almost almost holistic view of the status of the system you're analyzing, the organ or the organism you're analyzing as a whole. So we took the livers and the kidneys of these rats that had consumed this tiny amount of Roundup in their drinking water. And just again, on a daily basis, and these figures are going to really stagger you, I have to warn you. Mm. On a daily basis, these rats were consuming, we calculated four nanograms per kilogram body weight per day. Four nanogram. A nanogram is one thousandth billionth of a gram. Oh a thousandth billionth gosh. of a gram. And these animals are consuming just four thousand billionths of a gram per day, per kilogram of their body weight per day. Mm -hmm. Now, why is it important to understand this? Because all regulatory agencies around the world have set permitted daily intake levels, what we call acceptable daily intakes for different chemicals. The amount of glyphosate that is permitted to be consumed on a daily basis within Europe and in Australia is 0.3 milligrams per kilogram body weight per day. That doesn't sound like very much, and it isn't. 0.3 milligrams. That's 0.3 thousandths of a gram or three, 300 billionths of a gram per kilogram of body weight. Wow. But to contrast that with what our rats were consuming, our rats were consuming 75,000 times less glyphosate herbicide per day than what is permitted by our regulators in Australia, New Zealand, and Europe. In America, wow. mentioned earlier in the United States, much hardier, much hardier lot, clearly. <laughs> Regulatory agency, agencies, uh, Environmental Protection Agency, and the Food and Drug Administration in the United States permits 1.75 milligrams of glyphosate per kilogram body weight per day to be ingested, and they say that's perfectly safe. And just again, compared to our rats, that's 437,500 times more mm. than our rats were consuming. With the results that you had. So, yeah. so just to, I mention these because the results we found obviously were indeed very worrying. Yeah. The results, what we found was that using the these omics methods, when we looked at initially, we published a study in 2015 where we looked at the gene expression profile of the liver and the kidney from these animals, ingesting this, what I called ultra low dose of Roundup. Now, I have to remember, gene expression, pro the balance of gene function 
is what is the basis of our of our well-being. So the profile of gene function is either reflective of health or it can be reflective of one disease or another. And what we found, and it's revolution, you know, these kinds of analyses are revolutionizing our diagnosis in the clinic. It's, it's really uh, amazing. But, and what the gene expression profile of the, of the rats that had ingested the Roundup, what that showed was that the livers and the kidneys of these animals were not healthy. The gene expression profile was reflective of areas of necrosis, of, uh, and what we call oxidative damage, reactive oxygen damage, and scarring of fibrosis as well. So the gene expression pattern was already telling us that these two organs were in all likelihood not healthy, having ingested this ultra low dose of Roundup. Now, the thing about gene expression profiles is that they are predictive. They're not actually telling you exactly about the composition of the organ. They're telling you that based on this pattern of gene function, it's predicting that this could be state of the organ, health or one or other disease. So what we decided to do as a follow-up investigation was that we took those very same liver tissues, we focused on the liver in our follow-up study that got published in January this year, because that's the organ that showed the greatest evidence of harm from ingesting this ultra-low dose of Roundup. And we subjected the liver to now the protein profile and metabolite profile, the proteomics and metabolomics, to see whether the predictions of the gene expression profile hold true or not. And the power of proteomics and metabolomics, they're actually measuring the composition of the organ. They're not predicting what the composition is, like the transcriptomics gene expression profile. They're actually measuring the physical composition of the organ. And so when we analyze the livers of these animals, what we found was that the, this ultra dose of Roundup did indeed cause serious harm to the liver. And the profile of proteins and metabolites that we observed, the disturbances in the protein and metabolite profiles that we observed, clearly, very, very clearly revealed that the liver was suffering from non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And the more serious progression of this condition which is known as non-alcoholic steatohepatosis. Now, why is this um, so important? Turns out that non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is like a new epidemic of the age. Yeah. Well, I mean, uh, you know, everyone always used to call uh, fatty liver disease something that you got when you knew you had to cut back on your drinks and be a good person and, you know, only have two glasses of red on the weekend. Like that was what fatty liver disease used to be about. Yes. Um, it's not, now it's... about sugar excess and now you're saying uh, potentially if what – can we say that what's happening to the rats is an indication of what's happening to us? Well, I'll, I'll come to that. That's a very good point, Alex. As, as you said, the, the more classical we could say risk factors of fatty liver disease are obesity, diabetes and – high triglyceride fat in the blood, mm. these sorts of things. And I, I should say before I go on that the reason why this is a concern is that actually in the United States, 25% of the population have fatty liver disease. 25%? And it's, about, and it's 20 to 30% in Europe, depending on the region. I don't know what it is in Australia, but I would not be surprised 
if it was about the same in Australia as oh, well. Oh, I'm sure we'd be about the same. I'll find out and I'll pop it in the show notes for everyone. So that's why it's fatty liver disease has been called like the new plague of the, you know, the plague of the 21st century mm. because it's affecting so many people. In its early, in its, let's call it milder form, it, it, people can live with it, although it can be quite debilitating still because you feel fatigue and nausea, some jaundice even as well. When it progresses to non-alcoholic steatohepatosis, then you can end up with liver cirrhosis. And in addition, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease in all of its guises is also an increased risk factor for liver cancer. So it increases your chances of getting liver cancer as well. Now, wow. however, there is, however, about a quarter of those individuals that have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease of one sort or another don't show any of the classical risk factors such as obesity, diabetes, and high blood fat, but they still have the condition. And I feel, and this is something obviously that needs to be followed up on to be proven, I believe that our, our study has identified a hitherto unsuspected new risk factor for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. That is the ingestion of even incredibly low doses of glyphosate-based herbicide given enough time, can lead to this serious liver, debilitating liver condition. This is big. We think it is. Yeah. <laughs> so how, can I just ask, in your humble opinion, how do we get more people at government level to realise how big this is? Is it because so much money comes to them through these huge companies? I, I mean, how... How is it that this is not front page news? That is a very good question. We we did have some quite good media coverage, uh, I, I should say. But it's I so shared your study. <laughs> exactly. And we are very grateful for that. And, and certainly our article articles have been downloaded tens of thousands of times. So it's attracted a lot of attention. But it certainly hasn't moved the regulators. Mm. They've been coming up with various excuses why our study... Uh, is interesting, but doesn't mean they need to change the law uh, or the regulation surrounding the use of glyphosate-based herbicides. Um, to be honest, I, I'm, it's unknown to me what it would take. Admittedly, ours is only one study. I'm not saying that one study of this type should be enough, but I would hope it would be enough for regulators to sit up and take notes and at least say that this is serious finding and that it needs to be followed up. Yeah. It needs to be followed up with human surveys. We need to survey the human population that has non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, especially those that don't show the other classical risk factors, the other risk factors. Mm. A ones that are having high levels uh, of glyphosate. And then we need to do more controlled studies yeah. to find what is the to get our get the numbers up in our say our animal studies. Just to, so that we really nail this and the mechanisms of how, how this is coming about. And we're certainly doing our best to raise funds to follow up this investigation to, uh, because the implications are, in, are enormous. Bearing in mind that we, we calculated that the amount of glyphosate that these rats ingested was um, more than a thousand times less than what a typical American is ingesting. Wow. And well, uh, you know, and hundreds of times less than what an Australian or someone. Well, we who's, don't. Know what, yeah. We don't. Haven't been. 
you know, a, a big gap for you in Australia is that nobody's done a survey of the Australian population mm. to find out how much glyphosate you folks there are ingesting. Well, I mean, you know, with the way that a lot of wheat is farmed, yeah. with that, you know, that just before harvest mm. going over the fields with Roundup, I'm not saying every farmer does it, but it is a common practice. Indeed. That definitely has an implication of much higher residue. Mm. There are many points at which we come into contact with glyphosate residue. It's not that we're immune just because we don't have as much genetically modified farming because, of course, glyphosate-based herbicides are used on conventional farming as well. It's it's not unique to GMOs. Very, very much. I mean, in Europe, there are huge amounts of glyphosate-based herbicide used, but we don't grow any glyphosate-tolerant GM crops. There there Mm. haven't been, but they are, large amounts are being used before harvest and, as you say, most worryingly, as what's known as a pre-harvest desiccant. Yes, where especially exactly. cereal crops such as wheat, rye, barley, oats are sprayed within a few days of harvest to kill them off, to uh, dry them more quickly uh, so the farmer can um, bring in the crop earlier than usual and maybe put up his feet a, a couple of weeks earlier than he would. I don't know why this is done. It's purely for convenience. There's no reason for doing this as far as I can say. But of course, spraying just before harvest means that there hasn't been any time for the glyphosate residue to dissipate and it's therefore at maximum possible levels. Yeah. That's why surveys of, of cereal foods in Europe, say, say wheat, flour or bread, large percentage of flour and bread in the shops here in the UK have glyphosate residues. In the United States, I was staggered by a recent survey conducted by Food Democracy and the Detox Project that showed for me, shockingly high levels of glyphosate residues in oat-based cereal products. Mm. And there's only one way those residues can end up there because there are no Roundup-tolerant GM oats being grown. Yeah. So the only way those residues can end up there is because the farmer sprayed just before harvest as a a pre-harvest desiccant. Yeah. And that's the way it's got there, without a doubt. And it's as a result, it's there in staggering what we call parts per million. Mm. Not parts of a billion or trillion anymore. It's there in the range. Some uh, cereal products had parts per billion, parts per million levels. This, for me, is shockingly high. And well, because so, this is much higher than the study that you ran, right? Yes. Oh, it is hugely higher. Yeah. It's, it's, it's hugely higher. That's why I'm saying that uh, from the urine, human uh, surveys analyzing human urine for glyphosate residues in the United States – on the average, probably around five parts per billion has been found. When you calculate how much you need to eat on a daily basis to give you this amount of urine, this amount of glyphosate in the urine, we, we've estimated that our rats were consuming at least a thousand times less than what the, a, typical, a typical American is ingesting. And yet you, we found this very serious liver disease. In, wow. In and doesn't it just... I mean, it must break your heart as a scientist. It definitely breaks my heart just as a thinker to to think that everyone's always whinging about how expensive healthcare is and, and healthcare is one of the hugest topics of every election these days and how are we going to afford to keep propping up the NHS or, yes. you know, Obamacare or whatever it is that everybody's trying to fund. 
Um, Yet scientists like yourself are making these findings that are so worth exploring on a grander scale so that we can really start to see how the human population is being affected and, and potentially, you know, become a lot stricter about how things are farmed. What are you seeing that's positive out there? Let's just have a moment of positivity because I think we need that after so much, oh gosh, you know, all this glyphosate is going to kill us all, dearie me. You know, I think it's important that we maybe just get a little window into something positive that's happening. At the very start of our interview, you said there was lots of great stuff going on right now. So maybe that might be your answer, something that that's going on for you now. Well, just in my personal life, really. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I, no, you're absolutely right. There are, there are positive things there, which for me is encouraging because say for me, and I'm on public record already for saying this, so I'm going to say it here again, which is that the uh, chemical-based agriculture, augmented now with the uh, introduction of GM crops, has for me converted our food supply into a slow poison. Wow. In other words, that, that, very, those, that very thing that should be bringing us health and happiness is actually slowly but surely making us sick because it's impacting this cocktail. We've only been talking about glyphosate, mm. but we were to analyze our bodies. We will have a cocktail of hundreds mm. of different chemicals, many, if not most of which are coming from the food supply. And this cocktail of chemicals for me is the health, con- even though present at each one, present at very low amounts, uh, in, at regulatory level, the effects of the combination, combinatorial effects of all of these chemicals are simply not addressed. And the amount of research into combinatorial effects is also not very great either. But for me, this is a, a major concern that we, we need to get back to um, where the food supply is pure. We need a, uh, an agroecological based agricultural system that is able to grow food in abundance without the use of these toxic chemical inputs because the science is showing increasingly that even low amounts, given enough time of these substances, especially as cocktails, can be damaging to our health through various mechanisms, whether it's disturbing the gut microbiome, the gut back, the balance of our gut bacteria, or to direct effects on endocrine disruption is another well-characterized mechanism. Which oh, these- absolutely. There's... um phthalates in a lot of herbicides and and they're extremely disruptive to our, very our yeah indeed very disruptive on our hormone system on our gut microbiome oxidative reactive oxygen species damage you know the the mechanisms are numerous and for me the encouraging sign for me is that actually i think the public is waking up even if the regulatory agencies are dragging their feet in a, acknowledging the latest science what the latest science is telling us, at least the people are waking up to this. And we see people taking matters into their own hands, regardless of what the regulators say. They're seeking out purer diets, purer foods, uh, organic foods, and uh, taking better care of themselves. I, I do see a shift in the public kind of mindset, and I hope that continues to grow. Oh, it's definitely going to be growing, Michael. Don't you worry about that. So that really is... is um, my message, I would say, is that let's be good to ourselves, you know, and our bodies are incredibly, wonderfully put together. And if we take care of them, they, they will 
we will be healthy and happy uh, into a very old age. Yeah, and, you know, there's nothing more powerful than being at the coalface, researching, seeing the results right mm. there in your lab with yes, your team to know that you would just never be able to look at a produce market where there was conventional and organic ever again the same way. You just wouldn't. I, I'd imagine that that would be a no contest situation for you now. Oh, yeah, for many years, actually, yes. Yeah, uh, of course. Yeah. As far as, as possible, we, we, buy, we buy organic exclusively for home use. Obviously, when you're on the road and traveling around a lot like I do, one has to be more flexible. You shouldn't start. Oh, I but, totally agree. <laughs> you know, I think you know, the uh, huge message of the low-tox life is we do what we can do in the comfort and control of our own home life, but we're certainly not going to say, I'm sorry, is that chicken organic when you're at a friend's barbecue celebrating a birthday? Right. That's Absolutely right. just not how life and, works. And yeah. because I do know, I know a number of, um, of doctors uh, in the United States, uh, naturopath doctors, who are having remarkable successes especially with children who come into their clinics who are incredibly sick. Did you know that 50% of American children have at least one chronic illness and many of them have more than one? That 50%. Devastating. That and nobody is asking the serious question, why? Nobody in the establishment circles, regulatory circles, is, is asking why are our children so sick? And in desperation, at the end of the day, when conventional type medicine fails, families go to the naturopath doctors, like the friends I have in California, who the first thing they do is put the children on non-GM organic diets. Mm. And they give them, they almost invariably discover they have disturbed gut bacteria, microbiome. And we now know that the balance of our gut bacteria is vital to health imbalanced gut bacterial population not only means you don't digest your food properly, but it impacts on the well-being of every organ system uh, in, in, your, uh, in your body. So she puts them, they, they put them onto um, probiotics, prebiotics, probiotics, supplements where needed, and slowly but surely, the children get better. Mm. And the families to say that they're thrilled is an understatement of the century. Oh, absolutely. They, they go to the people like my colleagues there in desperation as a last measure. And obviously they, they obviously feel well, they wish they'd gone to them first. <laughs> well, isn't it devastating that our medical model, and I've been through this myself with chronic tonsillitis, it took years of repeat antibiotics to the point where I was on the strongest ones and they just weren't working anymore. For me to go, do you know what? Maybe I should try something different, yes. you know? And so I, there's, there's something about our model, our culture, that leads us to seek out the simplest, most basic body strengthening techniques as a last resort. I mean, how bizarre is that? It is just bizarre. It's seen as hippie. It's seen as woo-woo. It's seen, oh, no, you know, I've got a specialist and I... I had a friend message me just today saying, I can't thank you enough for the recommendation to Tabitha McIntosh, actually, who was on the show talking about pesticides a few months ago, who's a wonderful naturopath, and they've been able to all but get her off the multiple medications that the little girl was on with some really beautiful, basic 
herbal and dietary interventions. And yes. after having been told she was to be on them for life, you know, this yes. is this is the thing. And, uh, you know, there are cases, of course, where modern medicine absolutely saves the day. I always say I, my son and I would not be alive today were it not for the miracle of medicine and emergency caesareans and those sorts of things and no contest. But at the same time, when we're looking at all this illness and when we've distanced ourselves so far from nature, should we maybe not just get a little bit closer to nature and see how that works for us? Absolutely right. And for me, the, the shift that needs to happen is the emphasis should be on prevention and risk avoidance rather than waiting for people to get sick first yes. before try to do something about it, which is what uh, even our National Health Service here, God bless it, and all of its good that it does, the emphasis is has been from the word dot, very much on treating people, wait until they get sick and then trying to treat them. Mm. But that's not health promotion, that's disease treatment. Yeah. What we need to have is recognize that we, we, we now know very large numbers of risk factors that lead to ill health. Some are more obvious than others, such as say tobacco smoking. But we're now identifying that low chemical pollutant exposures can have major detrimental effects. We know these are major risk factors. So let's prevent them from interfering with our health. Let's move to prevention. Mm -hmm. And we can, I work in a hospital and I'm convinced that if we put the, if we cleaned up our diets, cleaned up our environment, we could half empty this hospital in a, in a decade. Mm. Isn't that an amazing so thought? The illnesses that I see yeah, are preventable, eminently preventable conditions. And that includes cancer, of course, mm. among other things, among other serious things. You know, we, it's, it, and that, that's the frustration that I feel, that, that the, the mindset is still is not fully on the prevention I mean, just to give you an example again, we another study in my lab recently has been looking at the effects of uh, plasticizers on breast cancer cells, uh, the, the effect of mimicking estrogen and whether they can stimulate breast cancer cells to grow. Mm. One substance that has caused a lot of trouble is called bisphenol A, bisphenol oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in various plastics. And the manufacturers are beginning to respond uh, to that concern by replacing bisphenol A with other members of the bisphenol <laughs> yes. family of chemicals. <laughs> what a and genius idea. <laughs> yeah, great idea. And lo and behold, we conducted the first comprehensive side-by-side -side comparison of six of the bisphenol A alternatives alongside bisphenol A. At you did that study? Yeah, we've just published it a few days ago. <gasps> Oh, my gosh. Can you share it with me so I can pop it in the show notes? Yes, please. Uh, I will definitely email that Thank to you. Thank you. So we, we, we actually found that in our human breast cancer cell assays that three of the bisphenol A alternatives that you can already find in foodstuffs and in humans are better, are more estrogenic, even better at promoting breast cancer cell growth than bisphenol A's. Insane. How, how far have we moved forward then? Mm. <laughs> no, well, we haven't forward at all. In fact, we may have gone backwards. Absolutely. So, and these are recognized. These are recognized things. But but if you look at what the breast, the, the kind of research into breast cancer that's going on, it's still trying to find cures. It's never about trying to identify the factors that give rise to the breast cancer in the first place and avoiding them. Never about that. It's all about 
this new miracle cure, this new gene cure, this, that or the other, where the mindset and where all the money is going in. And we, we do find it very problematic to raise funds to do research that is trying to, trying to identify risk factors to prevent a breast cancer from happening in the first place. Mm. There's only one small breast cancer charity here in the UK. Breast Cancer UK is the only one that focuses on prevention. All the other major players, uh, it's not even in their remit. Yeah. Well, I mean, even if you look at a basic doctor's visit, and let's just say you look at something that many women and, and men get it in their lifetime, a thyroid test, yes. for example, and you you will only be told that that is of a concern if it's at a level that it can be medicated. Yeah. But there is a whole lot of on the top side of normal and on the low side of normal that is all about prevention of that tiny little anomaly getting to the point where it might need medication you can prevent yep. it altogether yes you catch absolutely. it early enough and that's just Absolutely. a basic common one that most people will know who have a naturopath that they're working alongside you know but uh, i mean on a big scale i mean the mind boggles at just how much we could be doing if we shifted the model so I mean, that's Very, a whole nother conversation. I'm conscious of time. Indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> and again, what worries me is, is that, again, emphasis is on, at, at the at very best, the, the mainstream emphasis is on early detection. It's yeah. not on prevention again. It's just detect it early enough and we can patch you up. All right. I'm sorry, that's, that's not good enough. Mm. I want to reduce the possibility or eliminate the possibility even that you will even have to have an early detection because you're never you're not going to get it you know i mean it's we we need we need some major changes and i i and uh i hope they happen soon for the good of all yeah and i think with the work that you're doing to advocate with the work that communities like mine and so many others do our voices are just going to get louder and louder and we will get there i truly believe it so do i and that's why i'm so grateful for people like yourself alex that are getting the message out there, educating people, waking people up as to what they can do for themselves. Yeah. And it's on that basis that I see the future as being very bright for us. Yeah, me too. Now, what's next for you? Let's finish with finding out what you're working on now. You've just published your six mm. variations of bisphenol family compounds study. Yeah. So that's been put to bed. What's next? We're following up. We're doing some research right now with... Um, trying to follow up our fatty liver uh, and Roundup glyphosate link. Mm -hmm. So we're doing some work with human liver cells in culture to see what impact Roundup and glyphosate have on human liver cells. So that's in the pipeline. But we also want to try and do some um, research to show the beneficial effects of a chemical-free diet, of, a, of an organic diet. Oh, wow. So taking people who are on conventional diets, testing them every which way possible and then shifting them to chemical-free diets? We, that's, that's what we would love to do in the future. Yeah. And, but at the moment, we're, we're trying to raise funds to conduct a study where we take twin pairs. Oh, These wow. Identical twins, identical twins where one of the twins is on a conventional diet and one of the twins is an organic diet and then see what what uh, measurements. Uh, we're going to begin by looking at their gut bacterial balance, the gut microbiome balance, and see what impact there is there and then progress from there. So that that is what we would 
dearly love to do. We have really the world's leading collaborators here in London to help us on that study. Mm. Have access to a large cohort of twins that will allow us to do this sort of thing. And you need so, some cash. So if anyone's loaded out there, yeah, let, we, <laughs> let me put you in touch with Michael. Please, please do. It's mm. not an astronomical sum of money, but it is nevertheless uh, not cheap either. And yeah. uh, any any contribution will be most welcome to get us going with these uh, human studies as well. Yeah. And as you say, down the line, what we really would like to do is to take people who are on do all the measurements initially and then move them to an organic diet and then see what effects uh, we can measure. Because we have these, I mentioned earlier, these molecular profiling tools, these omics analyses that allows us to great deal of information from very little material. And they're very insightful. You know, these omics analysis have a very high predictive capability, a very sensitive and high predictability. We, you know, we can do a lot. Mm, amazing. Subjects where obviously we'll be restricted as to what kind of material, you know, a bit of a blood sample or a fecal sample. We will see, that may not sound like very much, but actually we can get a lot of information using these molecular profiling tools uh, from analysing just somebody's blood these days. Oh, it's incredible the testing that can be done. I mean, I can't believe that we're already at a stage where I can just have a little kit sent to me from America and I spit into a tube for five minutes and then six weeks later, after sending it back to America, I have my entire ancestral DNA report my raw data on every gene and expression that exists within my body. I mean, that is just, and for 150 US, it's just amazing. Yes, I've had the test. (laughs) Yeah, I know. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's it's fascinating. As I say, the technology, what we can do now is so much more. Mm. We're trying to make good use of it. it Yes, exactly. Thank you so much for your time. We've covered so much in this rather epic chat. It was absolutely lovely chatting to you again. And hopefully you'll be out in Sydney again one day doing a talk. I hope so too. I've always enjoyed my, I've done this now, one earlier this year, as you know, and I've thoroughly enjoyed my trips to Australia. And I hope to be there again in the not too distant future. Wonderful. And I'll be sharing all of the studies that uh, you've done in recent years around, I think this bisphenol A one is going to be a really interesting one for our community who are passionate about lowering toxic load, as well as the work you've done on uh, glyphosate and gene splicing and and the effects on the plant. So uh, all of that is in the show notes, guys. Please go and take a look and have a read if you're a nerd like me and you like to delve into this stuff. And Michael, thank you once again for joining us for the show. It is a great pleasure and all the best to you and all all, uh, the listeners. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. Check out the show notes at lowtoxlife.com forward slash podcast. And if you wanted to maybe share a quote and something that really jumped out for you, you can find us on Instagram at lowtoxlife or simply hashtag lowtoxlife across social media. I absolutely love bringing you the show. Thank you for any of the star ratings or one-line reviews that you guys have left. It helps me know what you've been loving and what you'd love to see more of. I'll see you next week.
your ease. Who is that? Hi, podcast.